Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Thanks for listening to Creative Control. Uh, While I have you here... Please consider supporting Youth Empowerment and Support Services, otherwise known as YES. Based in Edmonton, Alberta, YES provides immediate and low-barrier overnight and day shelter, temporary supportive housing, and individualized wraparound supports for young people aged 15 to 24. They work collaboratively within a network of care focused on the prevention of youth homelessness by providing youth with the necessary supports to stabilize their housing, improve their well-being, build life skills, connect with community, and avoid re-entry into homelessness. Learn more about how to donate or otherwise support YES by visiting YESS.org. Hey, this is Trevor from Halifax calling in to say that I support Creative Control on Patreon because I think long-form arts journalism is a crucial part of music culture and there's simply not enough of it out there today. Vish is a master interviewer, he lands great guests, and he has his finger on the pulse of the ever-changing music landscape, both here in Canada and abroad. For all of these reasons and many more, I think you should support Creative Control on Patreon too. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash Control today. I'm Vish's wife, and I will love him no matter what you do. And now he has me on the record saying that. It's an old story from early days. The elements are basic. Beach and sea. Land and air. Storm and sun. Force and counterforce. Proposition and reversal. A place. Rob Benvy is a gifted author, musician, screenwriter, producer, and songwriter based in Toronto, Ontario. Originally from Halifax, Nova Scotia, Benvy was a member of the band Thrush Hermit, which came of age and also ended its initial run in the 1990s. In his own pursuits, Benvy has played in bands like The Deers, Camouflage Knights, Tigra Benvy, and Bankruptcy, but he's also written three novels to date, contributed to esteemed periodicals, and written at least two films with his collaborator, Maxwell McCabe Locos. Benvy's latest novel is 2021's Bleeding Light, a mystical, surreal story of personal exploration and transcendence divided into four interconnected parts. Released by Invisible Publishing on July 6th, 
2021, Bleeding Light prompted Rob to return to this show for a discussion about his pandemic life and why he's not a hypochondriac, supernatural phenomena, existentialism, escapism, and social media, fatherhood and daddy issues, succession and William Shakespeare, why the Beatles were unprecedented and the Get Back documentary generally, nostalgia and why Thrush Hermit broke up, the star-studded benefit soundtrack to Bleeding Light, future plans, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash creativecontrol, plus in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario. This is the 658th episode of Creative Control, featuring the lovely and talented Rob Benvy, with your host, me, Vish Khanna. And free us of their curse. No matter. Me? I'm done with old myths. High time to castrate the gatekeepers. Hey, Rob, how's it going? Great. <laughs> well, that was very that was very enthusiastic. You're doing really well. That's great. Very good. Never been better. <laughs> no, it's it's downgrading now. No. I don't know what happened. Uh, where in the world are you? I can see from our video interface that you are potentially trapped somewhere. Where in the world are you today? Well, to find trapped, uh, I'm in my home in beautiful downtown Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Uh, some sort of some sort of basement cave type thing, though. I, it is. Yes, I'm in my basement. Um, I guess yeah, the, the yeah, you're seeing some rough rough edges. It's a bit of an unfinished basement. <laughs> <laughs> no, it looks lovely. It looks like a probably a house built in the what uh, late 19th, early 20th century, maybe. That's right. That's right. In, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Like, um, and yeah, we just moved in here in the summertime, so we're still working on it. It's, it looks lovely. I miss my old nineteenth uh, uh, century home in Guelph. Uh, yeah. I have a newfangled it's 21st century place. Is this well? Yeah, is it's, smart it's yeah, absolutely. It's twenty first century. Do you do yeah. like lights on? Like no clapper? No, it's not as fancy as it could be. It could yeah. be fancier. Yeah, but it is. It, it's comparably quite fancy and spacious. I have a music room with my drum oh, kit set fun. up actually in it, and that's cool. Uh, yeah, so I I kind of like it. Uh, anyway, yeah, mm. things are things are good. Otherwise, I, I know as we're speaking, lockdowns have come back and stuff like that. Are you keeping yeah. safe? Are you feeling feeling okay? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I. Yes, I'm feeling embarrassingly fine. Almost. Yeah. Shamefully fine. Yeah. I'm not really a worrier. Um, in that kind of, when it comes to that sort of thing. So as long as everyone's, you know, doing the, I just follow the rules. I do what I'm told and, uh, and, uh, have faith, <laughs> have faith that, uh, one way or another things will, tra- <laughs> will turn out uh, not for the better, not for the worse. You're, it's true of you. You're very subservient. Everyone knows that. <laughs> I do what I'm told all the time, <laughs> no matter who's telling me. <laughs> In your uh, in your literary work and in some of your musical work, I sometimes pick up on a, at least a tinge of dystopia. Yeah. Um, are you, does that make you psychologically and emotionally more equipped for actual dystopia when it happens? I'm gonna say no. I'm a sort of maybe what what's whatever the opposite of a hypochondriac is. Uh, I'm that. I never I never worry about. I mean, I'm also been fortunate enough to not have any major health concerns myself. So. Um, 
yet so far. Uh, so I kind of don't worry too much about myself getting sick. I worry about, you know, like my kid getting sick and stuff like that a little bit, but, uh, um, and the state of the world. And I guess, I guess it's, there's one thing to worry about the state of the world in a sort of, uh, uh, sort of nebulous, almost sort of poetic sense, and then to actually see it potentially happening. So there's a, you know, it's a different thing. And in the early days of, of pandemic lockdown or the sort of, you know, as things were really, really getting, Serious. Uh, I remember having a few days where I was like, "Is this it? This is really it. This is the thing. This is what's going to bring us down." Like this, it really. It, I, I was kind of late to that sort of thinking. I, I, I just sort of assumed, "Oh, this is." I can't believe you know, I didn't take it quite, quite. Not that, not to say that I didn't take it seriously, but I, I mean, I, I'm not denying the existence of it. But I was just like, "Oh, this will blow over." You know, like I just sort of, because I, I don't know, grew up in the time and place that I did that I've never really had to face any significant hardship in a meaningful way. So I just sort of, ah, things will blow over, you know, and then they have not. So I don't worry actively, but I just sort of feel we all do what we can and, you know, play by the rules, do your stuff, get vaxxed up, you know, all that stuff. So I understand not worrying about it on a, on a health level, a personal health level. You're not a hypochondriac. You're not a worrier. But yeah. I, when I when I reference dystopia, there's obviously that, oh, yeah. like there's the virus. Yeah. But what about attitudinal, like the attitude and tone of of <laughs> Western <Yeah>. civilization <laughs> as it endures this thing, this collective calamity? Yeah. That's where I'm getting at. Like I know, I, I, maybe I'm misusing right. the term dystopia, but it feels like a crumbling of society. Yeah. Uh, not simply, it's not simply the fact that we are literally plagued by something it's our reaction to it that i find yes frustrating. yeah i think yeah frightening yeah, I'm actually. Of the, yeah I'm, I'm of the mind like many people that you know as a world well, in the world you know the world is, is in many ways ending around us and yet we we continue on as if it's not happening you know and, and i do that i find myself doing that because yeah it's it's you're not really aware of civilization crumbling when you're within it when you're you know fed and housed and you know you know, like many sort of us in a middle class way of life are, um, you don't really register it on an active way, in an active way until it finally hits home. And then it's suddenly, what happened? What, what, how did how did no one see the signs? And it's like, well, the signs have been there. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I fully get on board with the premise that COVID is a symptom or a, a sign of things to come or, or you know, a, an example of how things in our world are just not sustainable. And, you know, the, our habits are catching up to us. Um, the yeah. way we treat our planet and treat our, you know, treat one another. But yeah, there's so many dimensions to it. It's hard to even get your head around it. It's hard even sort of even right now. Like, wh- what are we exactly are we talking about? Are we talking about the sort of collision between man and nature? Are we talking about the collision between man and man? Or you know, like the the, the powers that be versus those who get stomped on? I mean, and there's so many dimensions to it. And well, it's the per- really but it's ex- the perfect storm of all of those things colliding. I think uh, that's exactly, where, yeah, and it's, that's where yeah. I'm coming from. And I know, like, I know you're, I as you know, Rob, because you've been on the show a few times, and uh, we've talked many times. I'm like your, I'm your, I'm like your co-host <laughs> at this point. I'm your, uh, I'm your Ed McMahon. The last time you were on the show, we did have a co-host, Pete, Pete Elkis, who kind of yeah. stood stood Pete. back. I thought when I think about it, he was like, did he? A little bit. I, I, I th- Pete's Maybe. so funny and he was so great, but it was his idea to have us all together too, which was uh, good. I, I miss him. Can we get him on this call? We should get Pete on. He'll brighten the mood. He probably would. He calls me a lot during the day when he's bored. He likes to call, he'll call me um, <laughs> and when he has nothing to do, I guess. Maybe. I don't know if I'm a, the antidote to, antidote to his boredom or a part of it. I don't know. But, uh, 
<laughs> he's been known to call me up. <laughs> In any case, right, driving around. What I was getting at there is we've had a few conversations. I think I've conveyed my admiration for your the way you think about things uh, incisively, intellectually. So before we get into a discussion about, and I'm going to hold it up for you like we're on a, a TV talk show and I'm showing the folks at home, oh. I've got a, oh, that's what I've got a copy of uh, Rob's latest novel, Bleeding Light, which is really wonderful, uh, but also uh, it messes with my mind a little bit, and we'll talk Good. about that a little. But maybe going a little bit out of order, mm-hmm. uh, we've been talking a little bit about the current state of affairs. This book, I assume, was written... Well, let me establish that first. This book mm-hmm. was written and finalized prior to the pandemic, correct? It was, yeah. Yes, it yeah. was. So let me, let me jump into more of a present uh, question, I guess, before we get into the past with this, with your writing of this book. Have you been writing since the pandemic uh, occurred? And has, if so, uh, has any of this, these modern times, has it infiltrated your, your writing at this point? Uh, I guess a little hard to say. Uh, I am writing a lot these days. Um, I, I finished another manuscript a little while ago that I've been sort of, you know, sort of trying to get some oomph happening behind and maybe getting that out and, uh, and a few other things. Yeah, I'm kind of always working on things. I did, yeah, I, it has infiltrated both in kind of a, you know, indirect way and a couple times in a direct way. I mean, you know, if you're writing about our current contemporary moment, you have to make an active choice. Like, do we ignore this, you know, thing all around us, you know, just on a surface level of wearing masks or just the kind of general temperature of the society right now you know do you take that into account or do you pretend like it's not happening i had to sort of even think about that when bleeding light was sort of in the later editing stages like because it was written in in fits and starts over a a while a couple of things of it's not an overtly political book but there's a couple of things that i had to sort of like question myself like when does this exactly is this taking place is are we in trump world or not in this novel um and a couple i changed a few things to sort of make it Yes and no, you know, a little less precisely nailed down in time and space, but, uh, or in time, space, it's nailed down. But in terms of pandemic stuff, influence, I, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's yet to be seen. I mean, it's such a m- monstrous global thing that's happening. And, you know, certainly the effects of it are going to play out for a long, long time. And I mean, they're still ongoing and no end in sight, really. Um, but in me personally, uh, I would say yes, only in that I like to think actively about what are what is going on with us right now, and, and by us, you know, obviously I'm in a very loose term. I'm not <laughs> speaking on behalf of every single person on the planet, but um, what is going on to in the context of what I'm writing about socially and, and dimensionally in that regard. But in terms of like really have anything wise or insightful to say about. The pandemic, I don't think I, I do, at least not yet. I mean, uh, I don't I don't think I have any insights that are going to, you know, blow anyone's mind in terms of, like, what it all means or what it, it all does to us. You know, lots of people are trying to figure that out, and, you know, to varying degrees, succeeding and failing. But, you know, we rely on our own experience to kind of come up with our conclusions or non-conclusions, and that's what I'm doing, I guess. When you do write about something, uh, when you have an idea in mind uh, that might be inspired by something that is going on societally mm-hmm. or personally, when you do write, does it does it ever help clarify something for you? I, I, I do believe that sometimes when you write stuff down, we always say that to our kids. Mm. You know, if you yeah. if something's happening and you don't like it, just write write down what you feel. I mean, it's like journal keeping or keeping a diary. Just write right. it down. Maybe that'll help you 
organize yeah. your thoughts or at least take it out of your, your brain or whatever. But uh, do you mm-hmm. find that? Does it help you when you write to understand something more clearly? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't, uh, you know, describe writing or specifically like fiction writing as it, it doesn't really work very well as therapy. Um, and books that are written as like a therapeutic exercise for the author, I think generally turn out badly. But, uh, you know, if I had to, I could, you know, of the three novels I published, each one kind of relates to uh, specific issues I was having, or at least thinking about in my own personal life and psyche and, you know, emotional state. But that's all, that's more sort of background, I think, or like at least, you know, but I mean, that's, that's one way to ensure that you, maintain enthusiasm for working on something like writing a novel, you know, it takes a long time and you have to maintain, you know, a personal engagement with the material yourself to just be enthusiastic and excited about it. So while you shouldn't use it as an opportunity to like work out your demons necessarily, um, those demons can kind of push you on to, to, to do better work, if that makes any sense. So, uh, it's not like, uh, yeah, not like anything. I'm not really a big fan of, uh, that yeah, like something that's overtly confessional, but it it seeps its way in because I you know write about people and their feelings and their states of mind. So yeah, that happens. yeah, I know I, I I do I I can't mm-hmm. help but feel that when even in a yeah. work of fiction, uh, these characters that you write are some extension of you uh, as a person or your understanding of people or your fantastical notion of people even like that's all come, yeah. it's obviously all coming from stuff that's uh, within you as the creator so mm-hmm. uh, just to give to catch people up uh, and to uh, uh, maybe give some people some insight about what bleeding light is is all about I, no, I wonder no. oh, they've all everyone's everyone's read it everyone, it has been out a while everyone, sorry for the de- sorry for the it. delay and getting to you, uh, getting you on the oh, show okay. to talk about it there, Rob. I know it's been out. It's been out what since the summer or something or the fall? Uh, it came out in when did it come out? July. Yeah, yeah. I read. Yeah. I I started so, reading it in the summer, but then had to read other things. So I put it. Uh, it was. I picked it up and I put it down and I brought it to a cottage. Even like I, I read it as much as oh, I could, and then fine. I. But I, it kind of came to me in fits and starts. But I I will tell you, uh, Professor, that I finished the book. And I enjoyed it, and uh, <laughs> so. But but for the people who haven't yet read it, so I appreciate that millions and millions of people mm-hmm. have read it already. But for those who haven't, right. can you, mm-hmm. in your own words, characterize this book, summarize it, so to speak, uh, because it's a it's a fascinating structure in itself. But can you give people a little mm. a little little taste of it? Hmm. Uh, well, it is a novel in four distinct sections that. Uh, four uh, interwoven stories, all kind of to varying degrees talking about people's experiences with, I like the word otherworldly phenomena. So that takes upon, you know, encounters with unexplainable celestial phenomena, as well as, you know, a certain degree, uh, supernatural entities, uh, but also, you know, religion and ghosts and memories and uh, visions. But it's in a contemporary context, and it's kind of straddles many different places all over the world. Um, that's a very broad way of putting it, but it kind of, I don't know, without getting into the nuts and bolts of, like, the actual plot, I mean, there's, there's, yeah, it's four distinct sections, but it's not really, like, one of those, like, crappy movies from, like, the early 2000s where, like, everything's connected, and that's the... And that's the song. I, I you mentioned that you mentioned that it interweaves, and I can see mm-hmm. that and feel that on occasion. But it's not 
uh, as you say, it's not an overt interconnectedness. Mm-hmm. Is that fair to say? Yeah, there's connections. I mean, the, the character, the four sort of distinct stories are linked by relations between the characters in the novel, as well as kind of uh, structural and symbolic links between them. But uh, it is a novel. It's not. It's not four stories. Yeah, that's. I think, I, it, I think that's what some people might think as they get into it, but they are connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think of it as uh, the one. I, the book I always refer to as the Sound and the Fury. If you've read that, right? Like, that's like that's that was the. I haven't read that since university days, but uh, well, yeah, I've read it. Yeah, you've read it. <laughs> if <laughs> Prove my, it. No. If my professor yeah. from 1997 asks, <laughs> I definitely read that book and wrote an essay about it. No, I, yeah. I, I picked up on that. So in terms of these, I guess, mystical or what, what did you, otherworldly uh, ideas, do you have I, a, I choose my words carefully because I don't want it to sound like something it's not, and, and that's not to... to when it's hard to, when you're describing fiction, you know, there's all these sort of categorical and genre distinctions that people like to make. And I'm not like a person who necessarily cares about that. But uh, just in terms of like explaining it to somebody who does not know the book, they always like, what genre is it? You know, and I'm like, I don't know. Well, you've got job, you've got characters that I think are uh, like all of us are, particularly these days, you know, really struggling to figure out the meaning of things. Life yeah. and 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 also maybe their interrelations. Actually, there's a section here that seems to dovetail a little bit with. Have you been following this uh, television program, Succession? I have. Yes. I'm there's a, at least one part of the book where I get a Succession vibe. Is you that, mean like the the father? Yeah, there's something going on in that last section. I believe it is right with the uh, arms. Cap. Yeah. Well, that. Yeah, that kind of. Uh, uh, you know, for this autobiography-driven uh, elements, you know, for those of us out there who have father issues, like myself, this is this is in your wheelhouse. If you if you want to read about people with daddy issues, I'm sorry to hear that you have father issues. Are you uh, <laughs> y- you okay? Uh, yeah, I'm okay. Yeah. yeah, I had a father. I am a father. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, we'll leave it at that. Unless you want to delve into yeah. it further, is is that dynamic? I guess I, then drawn. The, between the father and uh, the son, the, because for, the, I, for those who haven't seen so far, it, it gets a little Shakespearean. Uh, read it rather, it's a little Shakespearean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it gets a little Shakespearean, yeah. a little Oedipal. You know, I mean, well, we all, we all have, I mean, parent-child relations. You know, that's those are stories as old as time. You know, it's hard to get away from that stuff. We are, we are of what we came from. So that's and you know, one thing about this book is that I liked to take those kind of archetypal you know, sort of timeless tropes and just really blow them up and like not shy away from them. And so there's, there's a lot of classic, as you said, Shakespearean sort of dynamics between some of the characters in terms of parental or authority figures and, uh, and cosmic relations in in that regard. Well, you create some characters that are both, uh, are all rather uh, damaged uh, and some of them are complete assholes too. And so when I brought up succession, Ah. you know, the first section I'm like, could be I'm not trying to I'm not saying you were influenced by succession but I've been obsessed with it as well and so you're like well this guy's clearly the Roman character this guy's clearly the Kendall yeah, character okay. like there, there's t- there's types of people that are damaged by uh, their upbringing or whatever society has presented mm-hmm. them with and each of these characters uh, represents some I don't know disappointment in life I guess is a way to put it and and I and you know knowing you as much as I do, like for example, 
one of the sections, the action takes place in India. And if, if memory serves, did you mm. live in India for a while? Like, did you spend time there? I, I visited there. My my then girlfriend, now wife, lived there for a while, and so I went there to stay with her. Um, yeah, so that was directly influenced by the time I wasn't there all that long. I was only there for like a few months. Um, a but, few uh, months. Or like a few months in India is months, like a long time. I was there for six weeks in 1989, and I'm still thinking about it. Yeah, it was. It definitely. It definitely uh, was a. Uh, tr- uh, it left an impact on me for sure. It's yeah, something. Um, it is. It, it's it yeah. Is. It's it's quite a place and uh so it, it and i was you know obviously <laughs> quite a fish out of water there um so yeah that's in the book that was definitely those experiences that people have in india are, are ones that i had um yeah yeah in, okay in a pretty in a pretty direct way so uh but yeah the succession thing i mean i i wish i mean that show is very very smart and very i mean i have nothing to say about the show that hasn't been said a million times everyone knows it's great but it's very unflinching and it's very bold and those are sort of things i aspire to but i mean it's like uproariously funny too so well i think you 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 go for that a little bit as well of course i mean there's i go for it i like that i like thank you for saying that i go for it being funny (laughs) i'm not i'm not actually funny but i go that's no that's that's sort of my thing i no i I, I try i just know that's my thing i know i know i'm not actually a funny guy but i make i make an attempt you know so i mean you know it's in the try Every funny person attempts to be funny. This was not meant to. This is not the section of our interview where is I is that true. I you s- you say that like as if it's something that's like like inarguably true that people who are funny try to be funny. Do you think that's true? Well, I think so. If you're funny, you're trying to be funny, and then uh, you could be naturally funny. <laughs> what about course. people who are funny without trying? Well, those are I'm just, generally. I'm just pushing those back. Are like your parents, I, if you're lucky, they just do oh. strange things, or yeah. you're. My daughter, I'll show you here. Okay. Look at this. My daughter for my birthday made me this. No one else can see this, but I'll describe it to you. Oh, that's a so, good. So, Rob, Rob, that's you describe banana. it. What do you see here? What What's going on in this image? I think what I see is a banana with a face and arms and legs, talking to or not talking to, uh, gesticulating to a basketball, and the basketball seems to be puzzled because it has a question mark uh, hovering above its head. And there's two more question then, marks oh, down at the bottom. There's presents. There's some gifts, I think. Yeah, with question marks around. Yeah, so so there's a mystery. It's a mystery of something is being conveyed of mystery and uncertainty. Well, then she also banana and a basketball. She also gave me this this card, and uh, which is nice. But this was for my birthday, and look what the what does the inscription say? Merry Christmas, Papa. Good handwriting. Good good penmanship. When I asked why, she said I forgot what the day was for. Because it was my oh. birthday present, and then she also she also wrote ha ha ho. Well, I don't know what it says. Ha 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 ha. Ho 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 ho. Papa. It's like getting messages from Weird. the Joker and the Riddler. And I think I'm. Yeah, going, I was going to say it's very Batman. Yeah. So she. So there's just like. A, anyway, that leads me back to Succession. Is the banana and the basketball <laughs> some sort of clue? Well, I love bananas, and uh, Banana, and I love basketball, peel, and so, basketball. so that's what she was going for, yes. and I often try to tell my kids uh, that despite all the sugar, bananas are good for you in the morning, and you should eat a banana, and, and it's slowly yeah. catching on. And we also have a running, tell me if you think this is bad, every morning when we walk the kids to school, I eat a banana as I go, and we get to this specific mm-hmm. uh, bush, shrubbery, and I throw the banana peel under to nourish oh. the bush, but... The, mm. They they worry that it's littering, and I say no, no, it's yeah. it's going to help. So this has become a running 
thing with my mm. my daughter. That's all. Mm. That's all I was getting at there. How old your How old your daughter? Uh, you don't have to talk about your. We can. Well, I can do it. It's fine. She just turned seven, sure. and the oh, other child is nothing. ten. So they're in that age where they they think uh, their father is. Uh, they're centralizing me to being a banana and basketball man. And that's who I am. My daughter's my, my daughter's latest thing is this is a fun phase where she says, "I love mommy and I hate daddy." That's a fun phase that she oh. right makes me feel pretty good. I get, I feel, I um, feel that they don't say that to me, obviously, because uh, yeah. that would. Be- she also says she loves me all the time too, but she like thinks and she tells me she hates me and then laughs her ass off. And I'm trying to tell her that's a really mean thing to tell somebody, even your father, who's usually the butt of the jokes around the household. Um, well, they you're not a yeah. worrier, you hate, said, but they, these kids are very perceptive. They pick up on your weaknesses. Mm. And I, I think yeah. my I, daughter does the same. She clings to her mom. And I mean, it says something about me. I'm also the bad cop. I'm the one saying, all right, turn off the TV, brush your teeth, floss, right. go to bed. Like, I'm that guy more because I know how yeah. time works. And uh, mm. I, I know what time it is all the time. But I, I also feel like, well, I mean, I'm, this is on the school nights. Anyway, I'm just trying to say, like, I don't know about you, but I'm trying not to make the same mistakes that I thought my parents made with me. And sometimes I still yeah. make them. And I, I'm not, I lose consciousness yes. of the fact that I, or cognizance of the fact that I'm even doing it. And uh, yeah. so my wife will be like, what yeah. are you doing? And, I, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what my parents did to me. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to do that. So you must be, are you going through that a little bit as someone with, uh, as you said earlier, some, some dad issues? Yeah. I, I, well, we off, you know, we rely on our own experiences and yeah, and I'll often like, you know, I mean, there's umpteen zillion things every day to sort of make a small decision on with kids. And, and, and often the decision is like, is this something I need to think about? Or is this something I'm going to let go? And then you rely on your own experience. Like, well, when I was a kid, da, da, da. And I'm like. Yeah, I try to not, you know, was 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 were things good when I was a kid? I don't know. Some aspects of my childhood were great. Um, I mean, I had a rotten father and a great mom, so I hopefully bring together the good from yeah. one and none of the yeah. other. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, whatever. Were the I, the you know, I've I try to learn from the lessons of the that is which has come before me, but. Um, yeah. Well, the the the, the pri- it's a it's a dad podcast. No, it's no, a dad. It's podcast. always it's, a dad it's always a dad podcast. Dad I'm cast. I'm I'm involved. No, but there are like the the misanthropic aspects of some of these characters. I think must be drawn from some aspect of of maybe your life. My own mis- misanthropy. Yeah. Do you have Do you have I mean, that? Because you don't yeah. seem you seem like a jolly fun. Yeah. If I might say, and I'm just going to course hey. correct from earlier. You're a jolly, very right. funny guy. I know you you appreciate oh, the jolly. humor. Well, you're funny. I, I mean, <laughs> it's it's also the Christmas season, so I can't help but think of you as yeah. my own Santa Claus. What? That didn't make any sense. My point is, this well, misanthropic uh, nature of some of your characters <laughs> that is also a part of you. Uh-huh. I know this too. Is that fair? Yes. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I th- I think uh, yeah, I would uh, get on board here. Um, yeah, I mean, misanthropy is kind of an odd thing. It's a term that people throw around a lot. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I characterize myself necessarily as a misanthrope as a blanket philosophy for how I, or a blanket descriptor for how I see people. But, I mean, there's a lot to dislike and a lot to hate about humanity and a lot of bad people and a lot of shitheads out there. So, you know, it's easy to get consumed by that and to let that, you know, stifle potentially as some of the, the the greater 
things of people. But I don't know. I mean, it depends. Honestly, it really depends on which hour of the day you ask me. Hmm. Right now, we're just two guys chatting over a computer, so I'm <laughs> feeling pretty good. Uh, I'm talking about myself, so that makes me feel yeah, good. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, certainly misanthropy and, and uh, disillusionment and you know, these kind of uh, a very negative view of the world is something that I, that's kind of motors some of my favorite fiction and my favorite, you know, stories. And so that's kind of my terrain in some regard. I mean, I think it's usually more people who are, more characters who are, I mean, I guess, again, like disillusioned or confused or lost in them within themselves. Yeah. And and I certainly have been and I'm often that way myself, you know, self Self-doubt, not in doubt as in, I mean, like, uh, like doubt as to your, as to your abilities or something, but doubt as in like, what kind of person am I meant to be? How should I be behaving? What should I be doing? Am I a good person? Am I on the right track? Am I, you know, I mean, that stuff nags at you. I don't mean you, but maybe it does you, but nags at one all the time. You know, if you're any kind of self-conscious, self-interrogating person, you just think like, what, what do I believe in? What do I, and am I acting on the, on those beliefs, you know, is the way I behave the way I'd like to be? Am I the kind of person that I'd want to be? And, and on a small scale, like, am I a nice guy? Am I considerate? Mm -hmm. And on a greater scale, like, am I, you know, in this, in the story of this, you know, universe, am I (laughs) a hero or a villain? And, you know, or, or does that even make sense? Is that even something one should even be thinking about? I mean, those kind of big scale questions, you know, seep their way into the stuff I write. Are you someone who has any particular fascination with excess or extreme behavior or extreme, like, yeah, just extreme behavior? There are some characters, like, I sometimes think that I don't know enough about uh, your youth. Uh, I have to get a case file (laughs) from your... Whatever. So, what are you talking about? You know everything. You, you, you know my my youth was being in Thresher. Yeah, that's true, that's and my, that can. Well, I mean, that's like my most of my youth. Yeah, I guess I know a fair amount about and that you know stuff. All but about generally, that. like I think of some of the characters in this book and the limits they push themselves to, or, or the limits they want to explore. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I imagine this might be vicarious for you to explore the extremes of uh, a human exploration through your characters. But are you yourself <laughs> fascinated by that stuff? What do you mean by extremes? Like, are we talking about like jumping out of a helicopter with a snowboard on your feet, or do you mean like doing drugs or like being violent? Or what do you mean by? There's extremes? a certain part of reveling in extremism of any kind, which is kind of escaping from reality. And when I think of uh, hmm. the kind of spiritual and I don't know, there's a lot of angst-ridden stuff in this book. The characters all seem to be like, "What the hell's going on?" And they are all hmm. immersed, as you say, it's an interconnected story, and they're all kind of immersed or confront some sort of phenomena. And it kind of makes them, it unsettles them, and it settles us as the reader. But it also, I I think it it gives them an entry point into escaping their kind of, what they might view as an aimless reality. Right. So I'm trying to get to the philosophical aspect of it, I guess, without sounding like a wank. But I I do think there's... Well, there's, I think, I think I, I do, and I really need to qualify this, but like, like, I do have that desire for transcendence, you know, that desire to sort of find more out of what we're given than, than is right in front of me, you know, like, um, that, that restlessness, that yearning, that boredom, that disappointment is there. Again, it's like, it's a kind of multi-dimensional thing. It kind of shifts as to what it really means. You know, sometimes you're just bored because you're genuinely bored. Um, and sometimes you're, you feel sort of, uh, 
certain words I I take caution in using, like when using word like spiritual self, you know, because I, who knows what that means. But what you feel that your 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 spiritual self or emotional self um, is is desires more than what you've been given. Um, that you know this daily life that we slog our way through. Maybe there has to be more than this. You know that that feeling that's built into into most of us that. You know that there's got to be something out there that offers more to me than just you know eating breakfast every day. Well, but um, don't you think that the rise of the the phone stuff uh, and social media, if you will, and just like the fact that you could be sitting in front of your loved ones uh, at the table at the kitchen. And by the way, this is actually a common issue with uh, someone in my house where I'm like, hey, you got to put the f-. first. It was the kids. Right. No, I was like, no devices or TV or screens at the phone. At the table, rather. Mm-hmm. But now my wife is often yeah. on it. And so, yeah. and I know it's stressful. It's a weird time. Uh, the phone, mm-hmm. I think what's happening with the phones is escapism. And, and, and a feeling like Probably. the present moment is not doing it for me. So I'm going to go on to the web. I'm going to go on to the World yeah. Wide Web and see what's going right. on there. Do you see a parallel yeah. between that, th- that behavior in terms of people just looking to any... We, you talked about drugs. Yeah, people often mm-hmm. use drugs and escape and alcohol and all sorts of ways to alter their states, so they're not having to deal with what's in front of them. And I feel like the sure, phones yeah. and the immersion in it is the same. I, I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be one of those people that's like social media and the technology is yeah. a drug, but I think it actually might mm-hmm. be. I think it serves the same purpose of like I'm not happy in this moment, so I'm going to escape yeah. into this little box. Sorry, does that oh, make gosh. any sense? Yeah, it makes too much sense. Uh, I mean, I yeah, like you're saying, I don't want to be one of those people who's like, you know, that stuff is point like it's kind of banal and you know tiresome to hear. Social media is killing us forever because I don't think it's killing us, but it could bring out tendencies in us that are not so great. I've tried out all that stuff and and mostly exercised it from my. Life, yeah, you're not on uh, the uh, you're not on stuff anymore. I think you were used to be on Instagram and uh, stuff. You're not on there. Yeah, I've been on all that stuff. I've been on all that stuff from various degrees over the years and tried it out. Um, because I mean, I like I'm I'm not a luddite. Like I like technology. I like I like the internet. Um, I try everything. Well, the out. social aspect of um, connecting to but, each other, I think, appeals to yeah. you probably on some level. On some level, um, but then I think. It creates it, what it really does is create a lot of like like religion or like drugs. It creates this sort of false hope, you know. It creates this feeling that it's going to provide something I want, and you know, on occasion it does. You know, it's not the social media and that stuff is not useless. Obviously, you can think of examples where like political causes or something have used things, and I've learned things or or you know been made aware of defects in my thinking from stuff I've read on Twitter or mm-hmm. something in my life. So it's not without its use, but I think. To support you in when you are feeling lonely and insecure, it creates a false hope that I think is really uh, not provided. Yeah. You know, I know people who've, you know, like from the stuff, you know, that sort of like fear of missing out feeling gets so intense and or like, like many people, I often think like, oh, my quote unquote career is not where I want it to be. Um, and then you re- go on and you know somebody and some assholes like, you know, just sold a t- TV pilot or something. I'm like, and I'm like, fuck that person. Then I'm in a lousy mood all day, you know? And, yeah. you know, we all have those moments of sort of jealousy or envy or insecurity. And it just amplifies it so much in your mind, especially when, when you have this sort of like uncertainty feeling, you know? And I just think those, that element of it is just really destructive in it. And I've, for some like myself, whose levels of, you know, self esteem are extremely high, and extremely low. 
um, all the time on an hourly basis. It just creates a kind of flux that yeah, absolutely, not really, not really good, and it and it makes my mind a little manic, and it that's that kind of thinking is not good for your mental health, but also not for being productive. Not for, yeah, not, certainly not good for writing. But so I'm not against that stuff. Certain people use it well. Some people don't. And the, the other thing is. All this, I've been on, I was on Facebook back in the day and then I was on Twitter for a while and then I was on Instagram and all those things long enough that I could empirically look at it and say, has this made my life better? And is it helping me in any way? And it always, the answer is no. Hmm. Um, and the things I like about it, like, oh, just putting a joke on Instagram that I think is funny and then no one thinks it's funny. And I'm like, oh, well, that was a waste of energy, you know, like, I, that, that's that. the, that's the hardest part. You get all worked up about an idea you think is good. Like yeah. a, almost like a stand-up comedian trying a joke, whether you're, yeah, exactly. ma- whether you're making a joke or not, uh, yeah. it, whether you're just trying to make some sort of profound, serious statement or a joke and you put mm-hmm. it up and then there's not, you, like you say, it doesn't resonate and you instantly, yeah. so you've wasted the time ostensibly coming yeah. up with the idea and then you now you're wasting time lamenting that you did it and that it wasn't yeah. so I get it it's and, a couple of hours of your life that is wasted mental and energy start, and then you really start thinking I've found myself thinking that like that you have fans like I've, I've started like found myself thinking oh like people are really going to dig this hilarious fucking screenshot or something that I've posted and like and then you know silence or like three people or my sister you know wow where's my fan where's my fan base where's my online fan base and I go, no yeah. it's just my friends and they don't care they don't everyone knows that i'm not funny and or they don't care they just you know so it's like empirically i can look at it and go this is a waste of time i'd rather be doing something else that said i have you know like um you know made like soundcloud accounts under many different names and put up stupid like beats and things in anonymously um, and I sort of find that a little more fun to do things like secretly and just, if, you know, some dude from Korea is like, hey, sick beats, man. And I'm like, OK, that's that's worth way more to me than likes. Yeah, we, we got to get over all this external. It's weird because you don't want to be a sociopath. You want to be sensitive to other people's reactions to your being. But at the same time, <laughs> we we are also creating this sort of insularity of like, I don't care if you think it's good or funny or true. What I think is no. all that matters. So it's very complicated. It's a complicated knot of of assertion and defensiveness and self-defensiveness. And yeah. it's, it's a bizarre knot. It's pretty knot. rare that that kind of stuff brings out the best of people's personalities. Yeah. You know, like it doesn't always bring out the worst, but I, I, I can't think of examples where I'm like, oh, that person really shines on Instagram. Yeah. No. Every now and some, some people, I mean, there's things that are funny. Like I'm all for a good lol but I and I also don't I don't really like being on my phone very much I try oh, yeah. to avoid as much no, as possible so um, you know so I'd rather but but that escapism I mean I do that I mean I like I watch like way too many movies that's my that's my escape and like it's that's I probably do too much of that well I, I will say like looking at butterflies becoming or sort of internet literate internet literate uh, whatever that means or at least consuming things online in a kind of de- humanized desensitized way i wonder if it's actually coloring the way i read a book like yours because in the within the context of yeah, your book sure. you can see how life life your one's life and other lives are either valued or completely devalued and dismissed and it, it's kind mm-hmm. of bizarre when a uh, life hangs in the balance in your novel and the characters are just like well whatever you know 
so like you, you get <laughs> yeah. to this there's something going on there in in, certain, in within the action of your book where I think the meaning of life in all the I, I get that that's a cliche but in, in sort of pondering what the mm-hmm. meaning of one's life is you can actually begin to devalue other lives selfishly and I feel mm-hmm. like some, some yeah. of that is really coming through in your novel which I think is maybe born of a time where that kind of attitude of devaluing others or not valuing them, whatever you want to say, I feel like that's really heightened these days. And so I feel like your novel kind of speaks to that on some level. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think so, um, if I follow your thinking on that. I mean, I, I very consciously, in the making of that, this novel, wanted to provide some kind of answer to the, to the questions that I was posing, you know, these sort of vague questions about like, what, you know, who are we as these atomized units in a sort of postmodern world and we're spread all over the world and we're connected and we're not connected. And we live in this, you know, especially sort of Western society, like this like hyper, hyper individualism driven world, you know, like it's all about the self, self gratification, self worth, self analysis, um, self elevation, you know, everything we're sold and told is about, you know, you, you are you, you are great, find yourself, be yourself. And that, that really does come at the expense of like, what does it mean to be a person and live in sort of in a society and have some kind of fabric joining us, you know, and, and I don't mean to be so like, uh, you know, airy fairy about it, but like, if you're looking for any kind of meaning of, you know, to our lives, you're not going to find it by just thinking about yourself. You know, it's just, it's just, that's something I strongly believe. Now that can be interpreted in a million different ways. But I, um, so when I was looking at the characters in this book and they're all very isolated and alone and hoping that the answers to their inner yearning, especially like the, the character in the first section is going to come from some kind of confirmation from above. You know, they're going to get a sign, the yeah. clouds yeah, are yeah. apart, the light is going to shine and suddenly they're going to be told you are good. You are meaningful, you know, like, and, uh, spoiler, it doesn't happen, but something does happen. Things do happen in the novel that I think illustrate, and I don't, I'm not, it's not really the kind of book that things will be spoiled, but the things that provide some a better version of that are when people come together. You know, like the answer that that maybe the the gateway to the heavens or the cosmos or the you know another spiritual realm isn't isn't a pathway to somewhere else. It's just going to take you back to yourself and to your fellow man. You know, yeah, that's. You know, and you know that's. I guess it's a little bit of a atheistic argument or something. I don't really like to get into that whole squabble of like, you know, I find sort of contemporary atheistic thinking really irritating and, hmm. and petty. Yeah. But um, but you know, I don't think the answers to the questions that are plaguing us. I keep using this "us," I use, but you, you get what I'm getting at with "us." Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I'm talking about yeah. us. You know, like I don't. I don't mean to be like so kind of chauvinistic in a certain way but the us I, the society that I'm a product of um, you're not talking about just to clarify you're not talking about the periodical us weekly you're talking about <laughs> us no. as a human race if you will yes that's what I'm yeah okay human just sure. race yeah. the race and uh, the human race uh, not, not the animals the animals are not part of this uh collective consciousness. I, I would never... I, I'm perfectly comfortable speaking on behalf of the entire human race, mm-hmm. but animals, 
they I, I don't I can't vouch for them. Who knows what they have going on? They have their own pulpits. They have their own newsletters. I'm sure they get together. Yeah. They talk. They, yeah. they have. Yeah, they got issues. Yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> but whatever what they are, I, I am not going to chime in on that. But anything anything at all having to do with all people on the planet Earth, I will speak on behalf of them. You know, it's funny as we search for meaning within ourselves and within you know how we function in the world. Uh, I think some of us can't help but be drawn to uh, to our pasts to kind mm-hmm. of figure out where where we came from. I think in the conversations you and I have had about things like uh, thrush hermit reuniting, uh, yeah. I've gotten I've gotten the vibe from you that you're not uh, particularly a fan of nostalgia or looking back too much. Is mm-hmm. that still fair to say? Yeah, well, it depends on when you ask me. I think I think you're mostly basing that on because uh, when thrush hermit did a reunion tour two years ago now. Uh, and we spoke about it. I didn't really want to talk about it, do an interview about it. But I think we, I think we got past that. It was maybe there was some friction there, but it's only. I feel I think, like we've I, talked about it a few different times, though, and I think yeah. you've addressed the fact that nostalgia is not potentially a nutrient-rich place for someone to function in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I fall into it like anyone else. Sometimes, you know, I'll hear a song or something from that I did like years ago and be like oh I forgot about that one that's really funny or you know and that sort of tickles a certain nerve that's fun but uh yeah I mean I I, I, don't, I there's no there's no glory in the reliving past glories but I'm, but that's not to say that I'm not proud of stuff I've done but I try to keep it try, try to keep it in perspective you know yeah no that's fair you want to be forward thinking but I do think that when mm-hmm. some characters like the ones in this book or when you th- talk about your own upbringing and pondering mm-hmm. it it's not nostalgia, mm. but it's at least processing your past and trying to figure out how you got there, and then yeah, and that can dictate your way forward. It's like a you're drawing from a behavioral and psychological pattern one way or the other, I guess, whether it's good or bad, and yeah. But you have to also recognize, mm. I guess, that you can alter your course. Like you can, yeah. You don't, you're not I'm married a, to a, the past. Yeah, I'm a very strong believer that that um, I used to very actively think people could not change, um, that people were, were sort of doomed to the way we are, um, and everything's kind of coded into us, and we just live out who we are. Um, and I very strongly feel the opposite. Yeah, you know, I think we, we we do have power to change our ways, but it can be a lot of work. It can be very difficult to change our ways. And so, how uh, the times into nostalgia? I'm not really sure. I mean, but. Uh, I try to, yeah, again, I'm just trying to, like, looking at those sort of things, trying to place them in a certain perspective, especially when it comes to music, because it's like, you know, I've done some things that have, have had found an audience and a lot of things that have not, um, and the stuff that people have latched onto is rarely the stuff that I love the most, you know, so... It's um, weird. We, we uh, The other thing we do as consumers is we we really like the first thing that someone did. Yeah. And then, I, was talking about that with, I was talking to somebody about that with Rick, about Rick Rubin the other day. Yeah. The producer of Rick Rubin, who I think, I mean, I love a lot of stuff he's been involved in. Certainly all of the Red Hot Chili Peppers albums are incredible. <laughs> um, Sorry, but, uh, I assume you're joking for some reason. I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know anymore. <laughs> um, but, uh, but his whole thing is just like, do what you did on your second record. You know, like every band that comes in, do what you did on your second, your second record is the best one. Well, he's certainly done yeah. that with like some of the older artists he's worked with. Like, let's yeah. get back to your core, which is basically him mm-hmm. being like, I don't want to hire a band for these sessions. Can you just yeah. play an acoustic guitar <laughs> by that microphone yeah. and talk and we'll figure yeah. it out later? And, yeah. And I may or may not be there. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, but yeah, I mean, we all do that. I mean, like, I found, you know, like, 
you know, yeah, the first album was the best. But I mean, there's there's reasons for that. A lot of time, especially in music, I mean, you know, the first stuff you do is just mo- you're most energetic and you're frothing at the bit and you're can't wait to get out there. And and it is a shame sometimes as someone who is you know getting older, like you feel you've gotten better at what you do, but by that time no one cares anymore because there's you know you sort of missed your your moment when you were younger um in terms of just getting an audience no well I, um, but i do feel like f- fans are weird they they dehumanize the people in their ba- you know that thing where like uh if a band reunites but it's not the original membership mm-hmm. like someone can't make it yeah. you kind of feel like did i see the band because we all yeah. we all recognize the bands have literally like there's no doubt about it like four three four people on stage uh, develop a chemistry, and so you you, yeah. you you're you're really responding to that. But it's also mm-hmm. a little bizarre that when Thrush Hermit says they're going to do a tour, for example, odds are the venues will all sell out. But if yeah. but if Ian McGettigan or Rob Benvie is playing the same venue, it might be a little tougher sell. And you're the people in yeah. the band. Like for me, I'm always like, what's I always am very loyal. If I like a band, like I went to go see Joe Lally of Fugazi play once at the Drake, and I, you know, there weren't that many. I was surprised that there weren't that many people there. Yeah. It was all kind of older punks like me hanging out, but it wasn't that many people. And meanwhile, of course, if the brand name that everyone knows had been there, yeah. they would have had to do seven nights at that venue. You know, so it's very yeah weird. Well, I mean, being a fan of music and being a consumer of music and. I don't know if I even think of myself as a fan of music or not, but yeah, if you did that freshman tour as an example, I mean, we, we, we were fully aware that, um, you know, more people came out to see us on that last tour than ever did when we were around. Um, there's reasons for that. I mean, time and we all got older and, and also Joel Plaskett in the band has, you know, he's kept things going and he sort of picked up with freshman yeah. left off. And so he, he took the, took the baton and ran with it and he has a, you know, a good following for, of his own. Yeah. Um, but people weren't going necessarily, they were going to see us, but they're really going to see themselves 20 yes. years ago. Like, yeah. And, and that's, that's cool. I mean, it, it just, as long as you keep that in mind and don't get a swelled head, I mean, music, so much of music is a social thing too. And as, as you get older and you have families and jobs and stuff, you don't go out as much and you don't see people at shows. I mean, that used to be my life. I would go out to see shows. Like when I was younger living in Halifax, that's all my friends were in bands and, you know, a band would play and all everyone you knew went and you went and partied and, you know, that was great. And that sort of thing doesn't exist as much for us as we get a little older. And, you know, people sort of sometimes forget how big a component that is to your life as a music enjoyer. You know, it's the social thing. And I think but it's yeah, any, seeing, it's, it's kind of any art, though, can transport you to a time. Like, it's weird. Like, if you... Mm-hmm. If I remember the first time I slapped on a Thrush Hermit record, which would have been after I'd seen you guys, actually, in the mid-90s. But, you know, it's interesting. People are constantly, I think, chasing that spark, that light, to tie into your book. Like, they're going back to that light and that feeling that occurred, like, to illuminate something for them. And they're just constantly chasing it with every... If someone's like, you got to check out this new band... I think for some of us, you're like, will this make me feel the way Thrush Hermit or a band I loved when I was younger right. will make me feel? Will it will it elicit the same <laughs> emotional response? Like it's a bit weird. Yeah, yeah, it is weird. I mean, and, and it and it works on the opposite end too. If I follow your thinking there, I mean, and maybe that was one of the reasons I was really reluctant to publicize those tours as much, and a little reluctant to begin to do them because certainly those were, you know, I I loved 
playing with those guys and it's the formative years of my life and it was you know probably when my obituary is written that'll be the the thing that's in it which i'm fine with but it wasn't all awesome the, all the years we were together i mean we were together since we were from when like joel plaskett and ian mcgettigan and i played since we were little kids into uh, like well into our late 20s and you know those are formative times meaningful times we did a lot you know we got signed toured all over the place you know had all these adventures um but it wasn't like amazing the whole time a lot of time i was you know we were pissing at each other and you know not a lot of time but enough that um there's that aspect of it so when going back doing the, the nostalgia thing it's not nostalgic has this kind of darker side to it it's like oh do i want to relive this potentially sort of traumatic you know thing i mean tra- the trauma of being in a rock and roll band is you know obviously not <laughs> equivalent to like no no trauma. but you're i get it you're you're not just reliving the joy that we all experience you're reliving yeah. the pain yeah i mean yeah. And, and and like i mean to be like fully forthright about it i mean like the reason thrusher broke up was because i was just sick of joel like i was just I could not handle him anymore like he was just drove yeah. me insane and yeah. i didn't and but over the years we've i mean we're still we're very good friends now and we we remain friends but it took me a while to just even be able to like listen to him you know and yeah yeah um but by the time, yeah, certainly that's like long water on the bridge. And I love the guy. But uh, getting back together and playing with those guys, you know, there's a certain element of like, oh, am I going to get like back to that? And I don't like, and it was not all on him. A lot of it was me. I was young. And, yeah, yeah, and of course. I had all yeah. kinds of rage issues. Well, not rage issues, but you know, whatever, insecurities. And I was yeah. like, oh, I, don't, I feel better about myself now. We all, we're all better. We're more grown up. You know, we're pals. Are we going to go back to a place that's like that? I mean, even when we did that, you know, uh, that tour with the first rehearsal where there was a tiny little argument about like what guitar I was using. And I just felt like this adrenaline rage of like, ah, this is why I hate these guys. They're always telling me what, like, cause I always felt that they were ganging up on me. That was the old thing. Like I was, and right. so I was like, they're doing it again. I can't believe it. You know, of course it was all silly and like we got past it in five seconds, but yeah, like, yeah, this yeah. is why I didn't want to do the tour. Cause they're just going to gang up on me the whole time. And I'm going to get, you know, uh, so um, you're you're basically George Harrison in this scenario. <laughs> we all have seen yeah. the Get Back movie now. I and, have uh, seen that. I'm kind of embarrassed that I watched that, to be honest. It's why? So, because it's such a cliche. The the watching of it is like I knew it when it came out. I was like every every person I know is going to watch that, and I just felt like I'm like a rube for watching this thing. But it was awesome. No, no, I, like, I'm 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 still. I've said it a few times now uh, to different guests, and I. But it's true. I'm still through. I still in the second run of it. I haven't finished the second. Run, you're watching the whole uh, thing twice. Yeah, I'm watching it again because I found it. Uh, for me, it made me miss. Oddly enough, it made me miss band practice. It made me oh, yeah. miss being in a room with because we're so separated me now. Too, we, yeah. I'm not even in a band actively right now, but I mean, yeah. I miss those dynamics. I miss the highs and lows of it, and I miss yeah. the ability to create with people like that. So, uh, and yeah, I mean, I mean I, it, I've only done it on a well, I, you know, I've done it on a smaller scale than 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 you have certainly, but I mean, yeah. I miss it. And yeah. also, that's you know, my that band is my first love. So it's right. I feel like that band uh, did whatever it could in the face of un unprecedented circumstances, fame, fortune, to humanize themselves constantly. Just do things that made them seem, mm-hmm. feel like normal people. And every time mm-hmm. I've ever seen an interview, they're so matter-of-fact about stuff. You know, yeah. even when you watch, like, interviews in the 80s with Harrison and McCartney and Starr talking about John's mm-hmm. murder, 
Hmm. It's a, maybe a British trait, but they just speak about it in a very like plain spoken, emotional but hmm. not way. And I think that's right. they're just human. Think, they're just dudes. And and I think yeah. that's I remember still as a kid, Rob. I was reading. I used to read every Beatles thing I had. And there was a section of an early tour where Ringo was sick, and so they had to have a sub drummer. Really? And I remember reading that. Yeah, it was like after they were really big. Ringo had like a stomach flu, I believe, or something like that, and he couldn't play a couple shows. And I remember reading that being like, these guys are just people. Like as a kid realizing like you can Mm. get the stomach flu if you're in the Beatles. (laughs) Like how is that possible? Mm. Like it just didn't occur to me. They were so iconic. So what's fascinating about the Beatles, I mean, I'm – I'm not like a Beatles head, but I certainly know their stuff inside out, like just through, you know, I mean, I, I do love the Beatles. I mean, yeah, there's sort of yeah. lots to hate, hate too, but what's great about them is if you're in, at all interested in rock and roll music and certainly like rock and roll in terms of it being a, ba- a band thing, um, that they did everything first, you know, like they, they, so that's one of the reasons why they come across so genuine is because they are genuine because they're not um, following stock moves that we yeah, all know that's true rock I, I, I thought about this years ago when that um also embarrassed that i watched that like three hour eagles documentary that mm-hmm. was out um and i don't like the eagles um but i watched it and it really struck me how like these guys are like second generation rock stars like they saw what maybe it's third generation maybe if i mean i don't know what i don't know who how we define these things, but like, well, you're they're taking, 50, they're, 60, they're, 70s. So they're in the seventies, right? So yeah, the way they're, the way they're getting off their, their private jet and the way that they're behaving backstage is they're following moves that are established, but not super cliched yet. Like they're not spinal tap yet, but they're starting to become spinal tap. Yeah. Yeah. And the Beatles don't really have any of that because they're doing something that no one had done before. Right. You know, that's a good and, point. And, they're, and so like, you know, if you sit and listen to band people talk, especially in like I have a lot in my life, it's like people in bands are fucking insufferable because the way they talk about their bands, they're so stock and so cliched. And the people talk about like their fan base or their, you know, like their fucking haircuts, you know, or their gear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's just so boring because it's so stock and cliched. Whereas, you know, like, yeah, something like the Beatles or like, you know, think of someone like Jimi Hendrix. I mean, you listen to Jimi Hendrix. I was listening to Band of Gypsies yesterday. And part of me was like, oh, these guitar playing is incredible and kind of disgusting because it's been ruined by decades of people doing the same pentatonic. Copying it. You know, yeah. Wailing. Yeah. Um, but it was new then, you know, and I'm not saying anything original. I mean, this is, but it's just that's what's so cool about watching the Beatles in the studios. And, yeah, and that and that creative process, I think they should show that to like um like in offices or something just like how do, absolutely how, yeah. how do people interact when you have to create something from scratch um creating music like it's so hard to i mean they're not really writing songs together but they kind of are but if you ever had to like sit down with somebody from square one and make something together it's really really hard i mean i, I do a bit of screenwriting and i have a, a guy i work with max and we're like writing these things like from square one together we don't we rarely write apart we write together and it's 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 grueling yeah but it's great yeah yeah and it's really satisfying yeah um and and seeing them do that it, like that's the part that's really i mean I, I love watching them play and it's great but watching how they communicate with one another and and kind of poorly but i guess they've been together enough that they have a kind of telepathy that they don't well have they're to following say they're following they're they're following they're falling apart like there was part yeah. of me that thought man imagine there was footage like this of them making revolver, what would that have been like? Yeah. But 
but they're making their oh, final yeah. one of their final records together yeah. and they're falling apart and yeah. i found it i mean and it was just fascinating seeing like mal evans suggest lyrics to paul mccartney you yeah. know like they're they're roadies like why don't you say standing instead of whatever waiting yeah. you're just like holy lord like but but they were receptive to it they weren't they just seem very human. They weren't yeah. like, "What are you telling me how to?" I'm a goddamn genius. Yeah. Why are you telling me how to yeah. write the long and winding road for crying out loud? Yeah, it's because and, because they weren't their their genius or whatever you want to call it wasn't necessarily enshrined in in public no. consciousness yet. They were just like yeah. something like Paul McCartney. You can tell he's just a song and dance guy. You know, he's like melody guy. He just like, I, well, get a, I get a melody and a couple, idea. I mean, they're yeah, they're full couple. of themselves in many ways, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they're not in, in not they're not full of themselves in the way that like if we were listening to like. I don't know, name some like the Foo Fighters or something like that now, who are just like a, a bundle of cliches smashed together. It's like yeah, the Beatles yeah. were doing something, and like Paul McCartney probably just, is probably just thinking, "How am I going to make the biggest hit I can make and the prettiest melody?" You know, like, and I don't mean to make it sound like he's an airhead. He's just he's not thinking about his legacy quite yet. There's a few moments no. where they talk about it a little yeah. bit. Like they sort of talk and he, he makes a joke about like, everyone's going to say the Beatles broke up because Yogo sat on an amp or something. And, and every, all of us are home. are like, yep, that's what they, you know, that is what, they that's what say. happened. I was so prescient. I thought, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I think there's it was really smart. fascinating though. Yeah. I, I found it really fascinating. Speaking yeah. of archival footage and I'll, I'll, I'll wrap us up here with a couple of things. Uh, but one of the things was I recently uh, was asked to participate in a book that someone's working on about Edge Fest '95, which Threshermit you played at, obviously. Right, and right. Uh, I anyway, I I was also sent some footage. Someone filmed stuff on like mm-hmm. a VHS or whatever yeah. uh, recording machine, and they just had they, someone or some people filmed the whole day. And there's really? a weird huh. thing where I was watching. Uh, I'm uh, you know you wa- I was there, so I was like, where well, I wonder if I'll spot us. Uh, my, mm-hmm. Me and my friends, and I'll tell you that there's a shot that occurs after uh, Buck sixty five and the local or uh, Stinkin' Rich and the local rabbits oh, have yeah. finished their side stage set, and there's a camera like that's panning the whole stage from like some vantage point, and it zooms in on me ah. as a as a uh, what was I at the time sixteen seventeen uh, almost eighteen year old kid, and I'm I walk by I'm leaving the stage. And it pans to follow me, leave. And I don't know why it chose me. The person hmm. chose me, but they just chose to follow me. And as I walk by, you know why? Because you're really pl- only not white person there, probably. That was probably it. Actually, <laughs> I actually wondered if I was. It was almost I was maybe going to be assassinated. Actually, it's almost it's almost Zapruder film esque. Oh, but man. anyway, in, in the shot, as I'm leaving, finally, uh, there's you and Ian McGettigan and Joel Plaskett. Huh. And I thought that was really weird uh, that uh, that would occur. And uh, I don't know what it means in the current uh, parlance of our surveillance state, but it was really weird to what? not only spot myself, but like, holy shit, like the yeah. guy, whoever it was, the person made a point of just for Fine. action, just like there's someone leaving, I assume. Huh. But to your point, it might have been like, what the hell's that guy up to? He's brown. You got to tell you, <laughs> keep an eye on that guy. Anyway, I just thought I'd share that with you because I thought it was interesting. I don't have any what? particular point. I heard about that book, and I don't know anything about it, but I, I, the only thought I had was, what, I guess we'll wait. We'll find I'll out. Re- but I think I the, it, but the point, as you might imagine, if you can think back on that time, 1995, there was an underground rock explosion that occurred 
Then the major figurehead of that explosion died. Uh, but I feel like 95 was the end of the... You're talking about the singer for a Conline Crush. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's gone. Oh, is he? I'm, that's a horrible... I, I don't... I hope he's fine. I can't even remember. Uh, anyway, I was referring to Kurt Cobain from uh, the America. Right. Uh, he anyway, I feel like there was a major no, he label. Was in Nirvana. There was a major he wasn't in the band. America. That's right. He, he wasn't was in a Conlon Crush. He was in Nirvana. There was a major label feeding frenzy, which Thrasher was eaten by, uh, fed yeah. at one point. But I think his. I, and we'll let the book speak for itself. But I think he's viewing that period as a pit, uh, a turning point because there was a feeding frenzy, but then things got very depressing, and then all the people who were eaten by the labels mm. were mostly all dispatched. Uh, shortly thereafter, right. and the the scene, the Canadian music community uh, started to kind of had to go lick its wounds before it kind of came hmm. back. So I think he's looking at that day as a, a major turning point. But again, I don't want to put. Right. I might be wrong, and the book might have changed focus. But that's I think the because you're right. Like, why would someone write a book about a day, a festival, like a not a super well attended underground Canadian yeah. music festival? But at the same time, it was a pretty pivotal, uh, absolutely, it was a meaningful day to me. So uh, I was happy to participate. Anyway, all this to say, Rob, I just wanted to broach that with you. I I don't expect any commentary per se. You're not a nostalgic person. If people want to learn more about (laughs) you and Bleeding Light, uh, where would you like to send them? Would you mind if I also uh, shout... I thought the <laughs> one of the things I thought we were going to talk about today was the soundtrack. Oh, and you should you, talk about the soundtrack. You did send me I that soundtrack. Mention the soundtrack. Yeah, there's the bleeding light yes. Soundtrack. Please do talk about the soundtrack because there's some uh, uh, rarities on well, that, on there. Uh, please, please. Well, if people if people don't know how to read, they can also listen to a musical interpretation of the book by a bunch of my friends. It's it's interesting because the book is not musical per se. No. Not really. No, no, there's not really any much music stuff in there. Um, who who, who I, who's on the the soundtrack of the book? Oh, a bunch of people. Joel, our friend Joel Basket. Uh, who's uh, I'd have to look at the list. There's well, Buck sixty five. Who you mentioned? He's on there. Um, there's a there's a tons, tons. There's an outtake by tons. There's a yeah. It's all it's all unreleased stuff. Uh, Marcus Starling is on there. Ben Gunning, Pete Alkis. Uh Basically, just all my friends. Brendan. Uh, from Broken Social Scenes on there. Brandon Canning? Yep. Uh, a band called Did You Die from Out West? Uh, a guy, uh, A. Wallace from Out East is on there. Uh, whack of people. Yeah, I just... Sorry I to put you... Yeah, I'm sorry to put you on the spot. Where yeah. can people Where can people go to find that thing? It's only a, a digital thing, so it's on Spotify or Bandcamp, bleedinglight.bandcamp.com. Um, the proceeds, if any sales, I mean, you can stream it or download it if you buy it or pay, put in any money. Uh, it goes to the Toronto Encampment Network, which is helping out some of the uh, there's situation in Toronto, like everywhere or not everywhere, but in many places getting a little dire with the housing situation. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we were able to focus a little bit of money toward helping that. And uh, but yeah, it's kind of a, a sort of a soundtrack to the book. Kind of follows the sequence of the book, some of the moves of it. Some people wrote original songs based on the book, and others kind of just picked stuff that sort of fit the vibe. Oh, nice! Um, but yeah, it's kind of a fun thing, and it turned out to be pretty awesome. It's pretty epic. Yeah, I will. Yeah. Uh, I, I think you sent me a, kind of a private link to it, so I need to go buy mm-hmm. it from the Bandcamp, and I'll do that right after we're done. And I'll link to that oh. uh, uh, Bandcamp uh, thing in the yeah. podcast description. So if you're listening, 
go read about this episode and you will be able to click on uh, the link to both uh, uh, pick up this book, Bleeding Light, which is out via Invisible Publishing. And yeah. also you can pick up the uh, soundtrack uh, via Bandcamp. So sorry I didn't bring yeah. that up, Rob. I forgot about it, but I appreciate you remembering and doing my doing my job for me. I should do your job for you. Yeah, you should. should. By the if way, you ever need a it host to sub in. It doesn't pay well. It doesn't pay well. This job, just so you know, it's just a labor of love. You know, with some, you know it also doesn't pay some well. Generosity. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Books. If we could go out on a song, since we talked about oh. some music, why don't we go out on a song from the Bleeding Light soundtrack? Is oh, that yeah. something we uh, could do? Could you pick one? I know. Uh, again, yeah, I hate I'm to put gonna... you on the spot. No, I'm just. You know what song I love is the one by Marker Starling. If you guys know Marker, Marker, Chris, uh, it's called Whatever's Easy. He wrote a song, I, I think, exclusively for it. He, he it was it was a you know a new thing that he did, and uh, it turned out really really well. And I, I, I like all the tunes on the soundtrack, but this one kind of hit me in a in a certain way. It's kind of mellow, kind of wi- wi- wistful. Well, Marker Marker Starling has been on this show. We are fans of of the of, of the Marker Starling. Yeah, What's the song that you've chosen? Uh, it's called "Whatever Is Easy." Whatever is easy. Okay. By, All right. Why don't do you want to? Should we go to it? Let's go to it now. This is uh, "Whatever Is Easy" by Marker Starling, uh, and this is from the soundtrack to this uh, amazing new novel, "Bleeding Light," by my guest Rob Benvy. Rob, it's always a pleasure to speak with you in any context, oh. and to have you back on the show is a. Uh, a pleasure and an honor, and I wish you the best luck with everything oh, in the future. Back at you, Vish. Back at you. <laughs> All the exact same thing <laughs> slammed back in your face. <laughs> no, it's great. It's always great to talk to you. I love being on your show. I love your show. I love you. Thanks. This is great. I love you too, Rob. Thank you. I want to stay up till the break of dawn and party on. I want to yell and sing Until my voice is nearly gone Can't change my mind Once I've made it up In a double bind of my own Can't believe 
in a double bind of my own making Cause I only want to do whatever's easy Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thanks again to Rob Benvy for appearing on this, the 658th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you can't find an episode you're looking for or if you want to learn more about me, and sign up for my monthly newsletter, please visit my website, vishkana.com. 
You can like Creative Control on Facebook if you like. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Vish Creative, or you can follow me directly on Twitter and on Instagram at Vish Khanna. Also, please visit patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly donation to help support and sustain this podcast. $6 or more a month grants you access to exclusive content, and there will be some exclusive content uh, with Rob Benby. We did a little extra OT overtime feature. And so if you enjoyed this chat and you want a little bit more, again, go to patreon.com slash creative control. $6 or more grants you access to that content. And uh, but you can always change it if you if you signed up at six you can go lower you can also go higher and so whatever you want to do it's your call man six dollars or more again is good but anything you want to do is fine patreon.com slash creative control also while you're there if you want a creative control t-shirt please just message me on patreon and I will get you one while supplies last thanks again to pizza trocadero the bookshelf and planet bean coffee each of which is located in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario, for their in-kind support for this show. Thanks, as always, to my pal Jim Guthrie. Uh, he lets me use some music of his on this show, and you can learn more about Jim at jimguthrie.org. And finally, thank you very much for listening to this episode with Rob Benvy and for subscribing to this podcast and maybe telling your friends about the show and maybe suggesting they do some of the same stuff you do. That would be great, just to help spread the word about the show. Otherwise... You don't even have to do any of that stuff, by the way. You can just chill out. It's fine. It's just, I just like to say that in case you you didn't think of doing that. Oh, what if I tell my uncle and my aunt about the show? Maybe they'll subscribe and listen together. That's possible. Your uncle and aunt are hip. Anyway, I'll talk to you very soon. Uh, Be well. Uh, It's the end of December as I'm talking to you. I hope, I think, this is the last episode of the year. Happy New Year. See you in 2022. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.